Welcome to the Icelandic Roots Podcast. My name is Jack, and this is part two of my conversation with Karen Gummo. But I think fundamentally, it's about just taking the initiative to capture the yeah. conversation. Yeah. I think that's true of any art. So I've thought about yes. my uh, about my Avi, who's 98 years old and in the long-term care home, and he's been writing poetry and writing stories, and I've read the poetry with him and his stories, and I could actually be a bit of a like art critic and say, well, you know, this part didn't rhyme, and yeah, you know, you could maybe get it, but of course, I I don't do that, and I think it's beautiful what he writes and creates, and I think that's taught me that creating art is not so much about how perfect the art is or how grand and spectacular it is. Playing the piano as well, I don't know how to read music. When I was living in Brimness, I played around on the piano every single day. And if someone listened to me, they would judge and say, stop that, you don't know what the hell you're doing. I'm sure Bill Holm himself might have said, stop playing the piano there, kid. This is horrible music. But uh, I think what matters is that you actually try to do it. And that's what is important about podcasting, about creating art, is just taking the initiative to do it. And at the end of the day, too many people spend their lives and spend their time not creating art, not capturing their ideas in a podcast or writing things down, that the world needs more people to take initiative to capture these things. So when I think about podcasting, I would, again, love to say it's all about me asking the right questions and, uh, you know, I have a face built for radio, as they say, which is a funny joke for saying that. (laughs) But, you know, I would love to promote myself and say that I'm so good at all of this. And no, what is good about this action is that I just take the very simple initiative to record something. And that's true of whether you're doing poetry or whether you're painting or telling stories. You just have to take that first step. And that is what, once you do that, you should really pat yourself on the back for. And that's the accomplishment. And I really believe in the value of the oral tradition too. And so in a way, we're carrying that out because you have the generous listening ears which allows and affirms me to carry out the art of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And my friend Sean Hunter, who wrote this book, Calgary Through the Eyes of Writers, affirmed me in the same way that you affirmed your Afi, Mm -hmm. that she said, come to my kitchen. Mm -hmm. You and I have rehearsed part, not we have researched many parts of this story. And um, now please come to my kitchen. I'll give you water and you Mm -hmm. give me stories and Mm -hmm. I'll feel like I'm the lucky one. And so she opened up time and a loving heart to listen to me and affirmed everything I did, except she's a stickler for dates. <laughs> and I always think, doesn't matter. <laughs> and, you know, and so hey, be she, careful, because I think a lot of genealogists yes. listening to this would also be a stickler for <laughs> dates and record keeping. But. Well, you know, <laughs> as long as you get close to Yes. But yes, and uh, and I understand that kind of accuracy for mm-hmm. people feeling like they've been honored or 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 um or sl- slandered mm-hmm. that you don't get the dates right sure. i get that but in that same vein i'll segue to um to this story mm-hmm. and say that um the leaf the leaf erickson uh, um you know, Cultural Club, yeah. Calgary Club, has affirmed me, first of all, by 
you know, there being an exhibit at Fort Calgary about 15, 20 years ago, and they said, and we have a storyteller. You can bring the artifacts and we'll bring, we'll contribute um, the um, intangible cultural heritage, the voice. And it's Karen Gummo. <laughs> and I said, oh, and will Fort Calgary pay us? I mean, there are more others other than me who could tell these tales and uh and so uh they said well certainly that would be our job and uh unbelievable head of interpretation there ellen gasser who went on to foster storytelling at heritage park fish creek um milk river unbelievable writer herself and storyteller um invited us in and so i began to tell these stories but as i looked through the folklore collections that even were given to me by my cousin dorothy who said look it's so gruesome (laughs) i don't think i can identify this you have this book it was given to my sons by their great-grandmother and i don't get it and i looked at them too and i went gruesome and at first, but learned them, none the same, for they were ghost tales, mm-hmm. which I had some attraction to, mm-hmm. but some aversion, which is the just best scenario, mm-hmm. I think. And so I learned several tales from these collections that have, um, and then I've told them again over the years, and each year they, there's another layer of beauty that appears to me. So, this year when I was staying with another of my cousins at near Holar, near mm-hmm. hot sauce, hot sauce <laughs> uh, she said, I'm going to take you on a tour tomorrow. I have the day off. Where do you want to go? And I didn't really know. And I was just happy at their farm, mostly with their horses. But I thought, if she wants to drive me around, I'll just go wherever she wants to go and off we went and then as we go through certain parts i'd remember oh we're near where stephen gay lived just before he um left and and his farm is over to the east and we could stop for gas at there at varma live and look at all the beautiful handmade things in the information center it's the most beautiful information center I've ever seen in my life. Uh-huh. And I've already lost one of the mitts I bought there. <laughs> but off we went now toward Akureyri. And she'd say, oh, we're just coming up to Baigisau. I said, Baigisau? <gasps> I didn't know before that you had to say ao, nor did I know that ao meant a river. But mm. now I know. Mm. And I have to stop there. And I began to tell her this story. Once, and it is called the Djokan of of Mirkau. Mm. And Mirkau is a settlement really not far off from Baigisau. So it happened one time, and one time it happened. There was a maid who worked in the employment uh, or for, for a, a priest in the parish of Mirkau. And it happened that not far away 
well, far away in the standards of the olden times when you walked from one place to the other, even in the winter, mm. and when the only bridge over the river was made of ice, that she had fallen in love with the deacon of Baigisau. Mm. And he felt the same way about her, and one day he came in the darkness of winter over to see her. And they spent a good long time together in the afternoon and they relished each other's company. So much so that he invited her to a dance at Baigisau, at the church there. And she was happy to comply. But their conversation carried on for they had so much to share. And the sun had a power that day it seemed unrivaled in that at that time of year and the ice bridge over the river melted well one couldn't tell that it had melted for if you looked there was still a bridge there with a great enormous crack and so the the deacon who had written over on his famous horse Faxi rode home again homeward to Baigisau with filled with love for his uh, girlfriend, his woman at Mirkau. And he did not notice the faulty bridge and when he and his horse put their feet into the, over the middle of the bridge, it collapsed and he fell into the river hit his head on a block of ice and must have been killed instantly. It wasn't until a day or two later that a farmer in the fields near Faxaflois noticed a body floating in the icy cold waters of the river. And, not far away, Flaxy, standing in the field far from where he normally spent his nights, and so the farmer put two and two together and realized this was the deacon of Baigisau. The deacon of Mirkau, rather. Oh, these names. At last, he hurried over to the people at Mirkau. That's it. Over to the people at Mirkau to report the death of the deacon. But the weather remained warm and so there was no bridge over the river for weeks on end and the the day so the people in Mirkau knew about the death of the deacon but the maiden at Baigisau was unaware now the night came for for their rendezvous and the maid got herself ready and there was another woman who worked for the priest in the household and a knock came upon the door it was dark, dark. It was near Christmas. It was a Christmas dance. They would, or a dance of Yule that they would celebrate. And so the other woman went down to the door and called up to the girl, Your beloved is here to get you, in a long dark cloak and a broad-brimmed hat. And so the girl hurried down to finish her dressing, and somehow by... Good fortune. She only had time to put one arm in her cloak. The other she left free and just draped over her shoulder. And quick as a wink, she came outside 
and the man was only in shadows and so he helped her up onto the horse and then climbed in front of her as they rode toward Mirkau they had to descend a steep slope under the glacier and as they did so the bright moon was shining and his hat was tilted up forward on his head his broad-brimmed hat and the moon shone down so that she could see there was a bear skull well a, a, a maimed skull at any rate and she wondered at that and suddenly a voice came from that head and it said the the moon is gliding death is riding here we go my beloved garun garun for her name was gudrun and one who was the walking undead could not speak the name of god and so it was safe or so he thought but they came down then and crossed the river and were making their way over to Mirkau to the dance. When the girl glanced toward the graveyard and noticed an open grave. Quickly, the deacon got down off the horse. She climbed down behind him, in front of him. I know not which. And then, as he went to stable the horse, she held her cloak round her, and then he appeared and pulled with all his might at the tail of her cloak. But because she had not inserted one arm, the open grave suddenly was filled with his dark cloak, and then all of the earth upturned, filled in over the grave. And as quickly as she could, she hurried over to the bell tower and rang and pulled at that rope with all her might. So troubled was she until the people came running and took her inside where they could soothe and comfort this terrified young maiden who was now fully aware that the man whom she loved had died and risen again as a walking undead. Well, in the days that followed, the girl was so stricken with grief and shock that she could hardly be calmed until there came a priest with magical powers of sorcery and charmed a great stone to roll over the site of the grave and ensure that that ghost that deacon could not rise again to trouble her and they say that the girl was restored again at least partially to her calm and peaceful nature but that she died earlier than she would have done in grief and some despair and that's the tale, as I remember it, of the deacon of Mirkau. What, what would you say is the moral from that story? I say that... If there's one to be gleaned. Yeah, I would say more, what is the truth I find in that story? Mm. 
And I would say that knowing, and maybe one truth is knowing that we all must surrender to, to the fates mm. and that young love torn from a couple is always incredibly tragic and so that story resonates in the heart of anyone who has lost someone mm. or who has loved and then lost that love and then the power of the moon and the elements and the nature nature is so dangerous right and the the different uh, experiences that that can encourage in the human uh, uh, imagination I guess you could say right yeah. and I actually do think about that a lot with a lot of the uh, old stories or mythology that comes from Iceland is uh, just how profound of a landscape is there and when you spend time there it's like yeah well no wonder this influenced the stories of elves or different uh, mythologies and that sort of thing because it is a really fascinating uh, space but I think that's true of any landscape in any part of the world Yes. That it encourages different stories and different ideas, gets the imagination going. And helps people um, accept the, the changes in the landscape mm. that nature creates through violent, uh, often um, some kind of tragic event is, yeah. is, what do we say, you know, anthropomorphized. Yes. Yes, and um, and a tale that began with a human event mm-hmm. is, but is unexplainable. Mm-hmm. If someone forgot that the bridges were only made of ice in sure. those days, right. and then um, I, I'm very charmed to know mm-hmm. that my cousins, mm-hmm. who live at, near Holar mm-hmm. and in Reykjavik, both are friends with people in that Mirkau River oh, Valley. And there's a priest at Baigisau who is so well-loved for his poetic talents that they want to reconnect. And the people in Holar are looking forward to hiking on foot from Holar to Baigisau or Holar to Mirkau next summer. And where is... is I'm just sort of looking at the map here. If you look at Holar, Holar... and then you look at the pathway, but that map is quite old. Uh-huh. But you look at the road to Akureyri. Mm-hmm. So it's on that road, past Varmaliv, past um, uh, other sacred sites, mm-hmm. toward Akureyri. So it's toward the east. Yeah. Then you and you're going through a mountain range. You know, where the crags of rock look like oh, there's a, a castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you see? Mirkar Yokel? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you go past Mirkar Yokel, which, and the territory is still so abandoned, right? Mm-hmm. So the land was settled so long ago, but mm-hmm. the landscape is so um, fraught with um, volcanic eruptions and... Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe flooding of the river. It's just sparsely populated. And so that story, when I was there, it just lives. In, right, right. And in, in, um, I told it to um, Sista, mm-hmm. uh, Bjorn's daughter, my third cousin, as we were driving, and she loved it. And then my 
cousin's husband in Reykjavik, Oyther Magnus' daughter, and Johannes Dagsen love that priest because of because Johannes loves poetry and he's a brilliant poet. And I lost my historic Viking pin that my sister Faye, storyteller Faye, gave to me from last summer's visit to Flate Island in Reykjavik. Um, and it, they had an in, incomplete closure on the pin. And when I got out of the car to look, run into the graveyard to look at the, for the grave, mm-hmm. it burst off my I think there's a vest. story to be made about that, maybe. Uh, but you know what they say about the elves and whatnot, right? And having missing things that, oh. yeah. So there's maybe more to that than just having lost. Mm-hmm. So someday, under a rock, I'm going to find a treasure chest yes. with my missing mitt, mm-hmm. my earring, and my brooch. Right, and maybe some additional things no, my that the elves have added, maybe, right? Yes. Oh, I don't know what more to say. That was a lovely story, and it strikes me, listening to you uh, tell that story, thinking about the storytelling process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you mentioned oral traditions keeping the storytelling uh, activity alive. In today's world, when I think of telling stories, and I think a lot of people are this way, you think about scripts a lot. Mm -hmm. Whereas storytelling, of course, began well before written language, Mm -hmm. before the technologies where today it's hard to think of a pen and a paper as technology. But that is technological advancement that is massive compared to what existed in the past. But then we go further beyond that. And right now, you know, we're recording this audio that we can keep forever. And you can turn your words into letters on the screen through your phone as well. So maybe, I don't know if the memorization of stories is something that is becoming lost in today's world. Or we don't think it's as necessary to remember full stories. Because we can always write notes about it. We can always keep a voice memo and remember it that way. Because you were just reciting all of this based on memory you know you have no script nothing that prompted you along so I have a lot to say about that one thing is you know children are some and children and seniors with dementia are some of the best storytellers that I know yeah because they are not afraid of living in an imaginary realm Mm. they're also not afraid of making a fool of themselves Mm -hmm. as my you know i mean some some seniors with dementia are terrified because they don't think they uh, they get anxious because they're they're aware that their memory is going Mm -hmm. but once they're beyond that they can dream up so Mm. many things based on their dreams Mm -hmm. so a storyteller it is unlike an actor. I I I understand, um, but I I you know I veer toward uh, the acting side because people will say you you use too many gestures, Karen. Hmm. Um, this is not about you and your voice. It's you know you must disappear. And so okay. I I but I think I I do do that to a certain extent. But the drama of the voice is creates a drama in my my voice Mm. but I feel lucky because the act of storytelling allows me to play Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. allows me to give up my worry of being wrong and not getting every detail right but Mm. to play Mm -hmm. because I there's nobody especially if I I I enjoy tandem storytelling very much but we both improvise so there's a huge Mm. 
improvising feature of it, which you use, I'm certain, in your um, your work at the zoo with your... Yeah, certainly, uh, and definitely in podcasting as well. You know, this yes. is all improvisation. Yeah. Oftentimes I get to a situation such as interviewing Nelson Gerard, and in the moment I think, oh man, I should have maybe prepared for this. There's so many questions and so... but. Once you start flowing in that conversation, it becomes much more organic. Things can go off in a way and you improvise with each other. And then as I'm going, I do like to keep a notepad with me because someone like yourself right now will be talking and be like, okay, there's a question, there's a question. I come up with questions that I'd be more hard pressed to come up with if I was planning before interviewing someone. An essential quality or element of storytelling is responding to the listener. Mm. And so if you get uh, an expression on the face, if you get you know somebody yeah. um, looking like they want to go, uh-huh. then you're going to change your story to yes. include them. Mm-hmm. If there's a train that goes by that, mm. or some kind of an airplane or vehicle, mm-hmm. you want to incorporate that. Right, so right. So that's what you're doing too. Yeah, but and also too when I'm at the zoo as well presenting because yes. those are interesting situations. A lot of it is unplanned. People yes. go into a space and they don't know that I'm there doing a presentation so that you really have to be dynamic. How do you capture these people's attention that are not expecting? And it is something when I first started doing this, I preferred to stand in the back and talk behind people. I didn't want to like make eye contact. I wanted to just kind of have an ongoing monologue. Or even anyone to introduce you. Yes, right, sure. It's like a pop-up mm. or a, you know, what do they call that? A flash dance. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are my favorite kinds of things to do. Just to mm. rise up out of the bushes. Yeah. You know, during a historic Calgary Week walk or um, in the library, just to emerge out of the shelves dancing mm. and mm. then do a whole set of stories on <laughs> dancing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's just the most, it really doesn't matter who you are because mm. they'll find out as you start. Mm. And my friend, you know, and the granddaughter of Laura Salverson would say, no narrative, no narrative, just mm. launch mm. into the story. Mm. And then you just invite your listeners right in. Yeah. Like, and it's so, the immediacy of it excites your listeners and mm. includes them. Mm. And uh, yeah, so when people ask me for a bio, I think, oh. Uh. <laughs> and and bio- biographies of yourself can change over time, too. You have to write a new one every time. Yeah, really. or every, throughout the day. You can think of yourself much differently in the morning than in the afternoon. And certain aspects of your life that you want to highlight or other ones that you want to hide, that changes based on your perspective and how you think of yourself day to day. Yeah. Maybe be a bit different if you were like just one person like i am ceo of this company and mm-hmm. i do x y and z but actually they change. no even that is oh, much more dynamic i'm sure than... absolutely and i was going to say gisley sigurdsson mm-hmm. who has the very popular i mean he he's a scholar at mm. the edda where i did my storytelling and but he has been fascinated all his life by because people have said oh no they read the sagas mm. and he said but what about the time before there was writing? Right. We, they definitely, you know, Stefan Gay Stephenson was lucky in his household for he yeah. showed an aptitude toward that. And so the priest taught him mm-hmm. and by reading the Bible and whatever other poetry. And um, But maybe he was the oldest one and why did he get chosen? And, and But so more, you know, even till the group of immigrants um, who came over in the... I don't know, even the early 
1900s maybe, mm-hmm. um, didn't write. Right. And so what about them? Did, were they always listeners? Yeah. Because I feel like I was telling my husband, this is a great aside, but I don't listen mm-hmm. to the news because mm-hmm. I believe I'm, I know I'm going to get it orally and I yes. can receive it much better orally mm-hmm. and take it in and puzzle about it mm-hmm. orally. That's just mm-hmm. my tendency. I guess I'm an oral mm-hmm. learner. Mm-hmm. And I, I abide by the rule, give me the wisdom to know what I can change, what I can't, and, and the cleverness to know the difference, yes. etc. And through my storytelling, I see how humans re- repeat the same glories and, and mm-hmm. mistakes over and over. Yeah, and that's something you learn just studying history in general, yeah, right? Yeah, It's always the same sorts yeah, of patterns that humans yeah. go through. Yeah, you know, Greta the Strong was mm. falsely accused. He was loved by the people because he was fully able to show his flaws mm-hmm. and they and sorrow conquers happiness mm-hmm. his story, mm-hmm. story is pretty tragic mm-hmm. and it shows how much she loved his mother and his mother loved him and who mm-hmm. wouldn't melt their heart at that no it, it's a uh, great one great saga but you've mentioned him a couple times in this podcast and as i was mentioning to you i would like to get more representation of stephen g within Icelandic roots. There's been great articles about him, lots of information out there, some discussions about him, his life and his art, and your experience mm-hmm. with his work and him mm-hmm. as a person. I feel so grateful that he was as fierce as he was about holding on to who he is, you know, mm-hmm. who he was, by cherishing the language he was taught as a, from birth, by um, carrying forth and developing his art of poetry mm-hmm. while at the same time being a farmer. Mm. It really is why Markerville stands as an important point yes. on the map mm-hmm. and why and his ideas were so broad and mm-hmm. open and ever evolving. And I know that faith is a journey and life is a journey and we make mistakes and these days we're less likely to forgive people their mistakes, it seems. But <laughs> well, they I, can become so permanent when yes, they're captured online. But he, um, and there were people who really felt hurt by him because they mm. wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't abide the, the idea of their sons going off to war and he mm. wouldn't, um, he would challenge religious views and, and challenge them uh, when they started speaking English and telling their descendants to speak English, yeah. uh, that you know, and really, yeah, he he held up to these um, high um, goals of of cherishing his newly adopted homeland. But he recognized that now he didn't belong in either place, yeah. which is a feeling yeah. that we often feel like mm-hmm. as humans. Yeah, I, I I've read some uh, perspectives on him from a Canadian point of view saying that he was the first poet or one of the first poets of the first rank I think is how they worded it so I think in essence saying one of the best Canadian poets when Canada was just becoming a nation and finding its cultural footing uh, even though he was writing in Icelandic and so that's why he's maybe left out of the historic view of Canadian poets because he was writing in Icelandic But I think that also is what makes him such a Canadian poet, because Canada is a nation 
with so much emigration history and such a multinational country that your po poets from this nation would be writing in different languages if what we are is a nation of multinationalism. Mm -hmm. And at the time that he wrote in Alberta, Irene Parlby, one of the famous five, proudly said mm. that the West was such a beautiful place because of its multicultural nature, unlike mm. those upper crust Easterners <laughs> who were so snobbish and, mm. and you know, interesting. <laughs> and now that's changed so much. Yeah. But also, um, what did that make me think of? Um, he railed against people who started to write in English, and Laura mm. did that, and that was some a vote against her mm. but yet she was the first probably Icelander to write and have her story heard in the, like all the way to Paris in the UK right, sure. in 1923 and so she was but she was telling the story honoring the story of the first Icelandic settlers mm. so there mm -hmm. if he'd had time to get to know her better yeah. they would have been fast friends right I'm sure and I'm of course, grateful that his works have been translated into English now today uh, because I haven't learned Icelandic in order to learn his poetry. And it's always amazed me how poetry can be translated. Because you would think that if, this, if these sentences rhyme in English, that wouldn't be true translating it into Icelandic. Mm -hmm. So there's cool. so much creativity on the translator's part mm -hmm. to get the same rhythm of mm -hmm. the poetry. But of course, I do recognize there must be something missing that I cannot understand yeah, yeah. reading his poems in English versus in the original language. So I have a little teeny bit memorized in Icelandic okay. of Utlegen, the uh, outsider, yes. and it, or the exile, it's sometimes called. Yeah, yeah it goes, Jega orðið enkverve en ekkert for the land, þóð fastra hafjum hjartið, nizdað reikdur band. And that's just the first verse of an amazing piece that's saying, you know, I, I somehow have um, given up the bonds of my motherland and not quite been embraced by, or no, I've given up the bonds of the place where I'm from, but still not feeling like I belong in the new mm -hmm. place that I am. And so I am in exile, mm. and I don't know where I belong. <laughs> yeah, those words spoke to me so much. I read that again in English yeah. in Iceland. And yeah. for me, I thought it was so cool because I grew up in Red Deer, which is where my uh, your, your family is yeah. from and mm -hmm. maybe lives still today too. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, close to Markerville. Normally, if you would travel the world to other countries, people ask me where I'm from. I wouldn't say Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. People might know Canada, well, they know Canada, they might know Alberta, but definitely not Red Deer. So I usually say where I live now, which is Calgary, which is, you know, top five Canadian cities. So maybe some people in the world will know where that is. Maybe. But even still, Calgary is relatively unknown, especially once you reach people more distant from Canada. But I discovered when I was in Iceland, I can introduce myself as someone who's from Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. This didn't so much work with the younger generations, but people of older generations than myself, familiar with Stefan G, they knew about Red Deer. They knew about the landscape between the Rocky Mountains and the prairies, poetry about the Red Deer River, which Stefan had wrote about. So I discovered that I can just introduce myself being where I'm actually from because they actually knew of that place thanks to Stefan. 
works. Really, really cool connection. And you know what I learned from my friend, Sh- no, not from her, but from Vidar's book, mm. Wakeful Nights, is he composed one of his earliest poems right on the top of Tom Campbell Hill, mm. overlooking the zoo, right. and wow. he could see the mountains from there. Uh-huh. And so he became known as the Rocky Mountain Poet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Iceland. And be- mm. But when we go to his farm, we, we look, and the bushes have grown up too much, <laughs> and you can't see the mountains yeah. from there. So it was in, actually in Calgary that he... Well, which makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. People who aren't familiar, Calgary, you definitely get the views of the Rockies here. But in Red Deer, the Rockies are even more west. But growing up around there, there were like some areas where you're high enough up on a hill, you can just see the Rockies in the distance. Barely, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, yes, barely. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was a very, very fascinating connection. But uh, I thought it was so cool to be in... Iceland and Hofsos is not too far away in Skagafir, the region is where Stefan was born. Yes. And so it was kind of neat to have spent my life living in the place where he emigrated to and then to go to Iceland near the area where he grew up in. And then that's where I really got introduced to reading his poetry was there. Yes. So kind of these, and then that made me reflect on those uh, words from the exile or the, yes. uh, because it, it is kind of true. Like, where do you belong in this world? It is an open question. And where do you feel more at home at? That's all I can really say about that. Anything else is a bit more just emotions. I can't even put that into words. And there's a, there's a poem he wrote uh, that's now translated into English by Bernard Scudder, mm. who had translated so much of the sagas and so much poetry. And it's... Um, it's called, it's something, it's, I am just grasping at it, but it's when he was a young man and the ship didn't show up at Soederkroker, mm. where he, he left from and my great-grandmother left from. Uh, and and so you just think, okay, I, I my family, we're, we're committed. We're going to leave. I'm heartbroken yeah. and I can't stand the idea, but I guess we have no options. And he says he's my, you know, my ship's strand. And sometimes the yeah, the ship got stranded offshore in some mm-hmm. kind of low water, high banks of some kind of mound of underground formation. <laughs> and uh, and he says, yet out there lies my youthful will between the waves that rove there still. So mm-hmm. he. He is grieving his leaving of the homeland and then looking at the adventure with some kind of great Mm -hmm. awe. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he just about didn't leave, you know. And he probably always battled with that, like so many of the immigrants did. Why did I leave? Yeah, throughout the world as well. Absolutely. Different people in different countries. It's a tough decision to make. Even today you struggle with that. But... At the end of the day, you do know that we live in a world that's so connected. You're always just a short plane ride away from wherever home is to you. But it's still such a powerful feeling that we get when we travel and go to different places. So I couldn't even imagine back then when that boat trip did seem so final. And there was so much effort put into that. And it took so long. Uh, Just very fascinating. So uh, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm glad to get some stories about Stefan G within this podcast. And again, someone who I hope to cover more of, have more discussions about his life and his work uh, into the future. As we wrap up here, maybe a few more words on the Edda House. It's a place that I walked past when I was in Iceland. 
um, but what a very beautiful institution. And I would just be curious to hear a bit more of your experience uh, being there and being part of their conference uh, that they had. I was just on the fringe of it. Okay. I was involved in my dance class the mm. whole day before. <laughs> but I came early to meet Gisley Sigurdsson, who is the kind and gentle and brilliant scholar there, who we worked on technical details of my presentation. But the building itself, first of all, you walk up to it and it's circular. Mm -hmm. And I love that as a symbol, too, of the circle of story, the circle of life, the never-ending circle of love. Um, and it has the, you know, the text, ancient calligraphy, emblazoned on the exterior. It's surrounded by water, which is like Iceland itself. Yeah, that's and, true. I, sorry to interrupt, you know, but yeah, the building itself is kind of like an island because yes. there is this water feature. Wow, that's very exactly. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's so and it's sometimes confusing which is the place to enter. And the right, day sure. I performed, the front door was mm. locked. <laughs> and so people would come around, and then you'd see this face like, oh, what? And then you'd see them see this mm. little sign that led them to the other door. Mm. But uh, the circle of storytellers, mm. the listening ear, and through all the ages, the mm. yeah celebration of the power bestowed upon us by the Odin's magic mead. Mm gift of poetry so that we might have a command of words that wisdom would be loved and remembered mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. mm. well uh, maybe this is a fine place to wrap up so I don't know if there's a few final parting words or maybe another uh, verse or something that you know in Icelandic would be mm. wonderful to take us out of this mm-hmm mm-hmm well, that has been the way that I've learned some Icelandic is mm -hmm. through these verses partly connect, con collected by scholars at the University of Manitoba mm. and some people maybe like Gisli Sigurdsson helping with the process mm -hmm. and going out to listen to elders who still remembered the rhymes from when they were mm. small. Yeah. And one is you take up a daisy in your hand and it's all about love and you say, Han elskar mich. Af utlicharta, i fermata, offer het, hala litid, o ekinet. So, can you guess what I was doing? Because you saw the gestures. Uh, oh, I might not have given you enough. Ate the daisy? Well, kind of like he loves me. Oh, he loves I see. Me not, okay. only it's he loves me, Hanels Garmik, af utlicharta, with mm -hmm. all his heart. Okay. Um, I firmauta, I firmauta, with mm. great firmness. <laughs> I firmauta, overheat, like overheated. Oh, this mm. romance is getting too hot. And then, harla litith. Oh, it's dying, this romance. <laughs> oh, echinate, mm. not at all. <laughs> yes, wonderful. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Karen, thank you very much for agreeing to do the podcast with me, for sharing uh, some stories, and for having some very enlightening discussions. Thank you all for listening. To learn more, you can visit Karen Gummel's website. will be linked down below. 
And do be sure to check out the Icelandic Roots website. Karen recently did a webinar for our community about the prose Edda and the origin of poetry. If you would like to uh, receive these webinars first, consider becoming an Icelandic Roots member. Or if you'd like to learn more about your Icelandic Roots heritage, of course, this is the best database for Western Icelanders to learn more about who we are, where we come from, and who we're related to. Be sure to listen to our other episodes of the podcast as well. And thank you very much for joining us for this one, and stay tuned for more.